0: Welcome to Cultural Technology. My name is Bernard Dionysus-Kaden. In the last few decades, American scholars, marketers, and artists, as well as others, have shown an increasing preoccupation with the concept of appropriation and collaborative production. Websites like YouTube and Wikipedia have raised new questions about the possibility of decentralizing or democratizing media and knowledge production. Various efforts, such as Copyleft, and the Creative Commons have even sought to establish new forms of copyright and licensing that would carve out a legal niche for appropriation while still affording some control to creators and designers. My guest today, Dr. Larissa Mann, argues that these efforts are limited by their tendency to think copyright, licensing, and production from within the horizons of U.S. American and Western European law and politics. Recently, she has been examining the role of Jamaican street dances as sites that galvanize creative collaboration without recourse to many of the assumptions about ownership that dominate American and European jurisprudence. Dr. Mann has a PhD from UC Berkeley Law School, Law School of Jurisprudence and Social Policy. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Jurisprudence and Social Policy Department or Program.
0: She also teaches media studies at Rutgers University, University. And when not lecturing in the classroom, she may be found at clubs and festivals where, in the guise of her alter ego, DJ Ripley, she brings global street to bars, clubs, festivals, and beyond. She can be found online at djripley.blogspot.com. So this leads to our first question. Uh, What do I call you? Dr. Man? DJ Ripley?
1: Uh... I mean, it depends on the context, yeah. whether that makes sense. Uh, you, I guess, could call me Dr. Man, uh, but it doesn't... It, you know, you can call me Larissa.
0: Okay, Larissa. <laughs> um, so thanks for being here today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about why you first became interested in studying practices of uh, musical creation and collaboration in Jamaica? Uh,
1: I became interested in Jamaica first... As a DJ um, As both a sort of historic Origin of DJ culture uh, And also as someone who played a lot of Jamaican music uh, And when I started combining that with my interest In property rights and ownership and power I started noticing that the way people thought about things like ownership Or seemed to think from how they behaved uh, About things like ownership and Ethics of how you collaborate and work together And how you reuse music and sound It seemed to have a whole different set of logics Than mm-hmm. what uh, people assumed in Certainly in relation to mainstream economics Ideas about ownership and incentives um, And also uh, in contradiction to a lot of copyright theorists Talking about ownership and creativity uh, And then as a DJ I realized that pretty much everything that I did as a DJ to make it a good experience mm-hmm. uh, was either irrelevant or in contradiction to copyright law. So even though there's a public debate uh, about nowadays about copyright law being something which is supposed to help artists in some way or creators in some way or creative communities in some way, uh, that wasn't how I experienced it, and that also didn't seem to me very relevant to how mm-hmm. Jamaicans were. Um, Experiencing how they dealt with music And then looking at the development Of Jamaican music making In its history It also contradicted all of the narratives That intellectual property Organizations put forward Mm -hmm. about the role Of copyright in developing creative Mm -hmm. industries So it was a really great Sort of case study Mm -hmm. Recent case study Counter example of What the sort of Uh, policy world was saying about how you must have copyright for an industry to develop. But Mm -hmm. in Jamaica they did not enforce copyright during the whole explosion of reggae and dance hall and all of the popular Jamaican musics. Mm -hmm. So whatever was happening it had to be different from that.
0: And so just uh, to contextualize this Mm -hmm. and also figure if I understand right so these interests were probably developing in the 90s and 2000s when there was a growing interest in copy left creative commons and so on um so can you i guess can you start by talking about uh specifically some of the assumptions progressive commercial or otherwise Mm -hmm. that that you were encountering in say more academic discussions Mm -hmm. and how they uh contrasted with what you saw kind of on the ground either in your own dj scene or in jamaica
1: sure uh, I mean, the first and most basic assumption, which still surprises me how much people seem to rely on it, in especially in um, some policy discussions and in some economic discussions, is the idea that there's a relationship between copyright and the incentive to create, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: which, to me, anyone who's involved in any kind of artistic creation um, would find sort of funny, the idea that you sort of would be making art for the purpose of later retaining the right to make some money off licensing access to the art it's not to say that artists don't want to get paid and it's not to say that over time people don't have a relationship to their art or music where copyright or some other system might be helpful to you know, making it sustainable yeah. but in terms of incentivizing production, which is how the most economists talk about it, it's just a Irrelevant. It mm-hmm. does not relate to reality at all. Um, but you still see it in terms of policy discussions where people are like, well, we're going to design this perfect copyright policy, and as long as artists follow these six steps, then their music is going to be legal and everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not how people tend to create. And especially uh, when you're talking about music and things that are much more communal than say an individual person creating an individual craft mm-hmm. uh, the reasons why music exists are social reasons so it doesn't make sense again to think about um, following these sort of individualistic six steps or whatever uh, it, it's much more about the social function that music and music engaging with music has for mm-hmm. people and so uh, that contrast both the incentive idea and then just the sort of general idea of looking at Music and art making in a sort of individualistic way seems to me to be sort of baseline misunderstandings of how, Mm -hmm. uh, again, especially for music, how this uh, how it comes to be in the world and how people come to engage with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then most of the other sort of contradictions, I think, come come from that. Uh,
0: And so, all right, so part of what you're describing there is. A certain set of commercial or capitalist assumptions about how work is rewarded why people create and so forth um probably is a tendency whether it's from the economic side or not there's a certain assumption about there's also a set of corporate interest there mm-hmm. um so there's also i mean there's been one attempt to kind of critique that or rethink that from people like Lawrence Lessig or Henry Jenkins mm. who tried to say, actually we need uh, new forms of copyright and licensing that enable someone to create, but you know, take the assumption that maybe they're not trying to make money of it, money right. off it, but they want a little control about how people use it down the line. Right. Um, so do you, I mean, it do, does it, that kind of alternative, probably progressively minded understanding of creation, um, do you feel like the, say, practice of a Jamaican street dance would challenge some of their assumptions as well?
1: I think so. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, those, the larger question that com- I think that's behind that has to do with, it's not only about economics, but there's still an assumption about rights and about the idea of sort of protection, the idea that the law functions to protect people mm-hmm. uh, and that we need to have laws that work to protect people and that's something that even from my experience with sort of music subcultures in the states but especially once I got to Jamaica uh, I felt like that's not a baseline assumption that makes sense to start with mm-hmm. but that, that people are either wanting needing or reasonably expecting the law to, to function to protect them uh, that's not really how their people's experience has been so uh, the um, construction of sort of different kinds of copyright systems, I think it's clearly informed by a more expansive understanding about creativity, but in a way they seem like projects to sort of save law, yeah. <laughs> you know, and save law's relevance for these communities. And uh, to some extent, I think some aspects of creative commons might work to describe some things happening in the street dance, but people are, for example, interested in making money. They just don't make it in the ways that, uh, that are usually assumed by the legal system around copyright. I mean, even that is a sort of anomaly, which is to say the discussion of copyright as the way that artists make money only describes a very narrow slice of artists and a very narrow slice of history. Mm -hmm. So it's actually the exception rather Mm -hmm. than the rule. So the idea that we should be hanging all of our hopes for creative communities or individuals on copyright in terms of their survival, I think dodges larger questions about labor and a bunch Mm -hmm. of other stuff, which is to say, um, you know, there are a lot of problems facing Jamaicans who are poor, whether they're musicians or not, and those problems need to get solved. I don't think copyright is going to solve the problem. And the same in the U.S., where the reasons why artists don't make money or musicians don't make money is only, I think, marginally related to copyright, and is a lot more related to issues around corporate power and the fact that we don't have a working healthcare system, and that you know, and debt and student loans and things like that. And I think if those problems were solved, uh, then copyright would be a very sort of icing on the cake kind of discussion, mm-hmm. you know. So that I think is sort of the 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 issue for me is that a lot of these frameworks seem to me to try to do too much, like they try to solve problems they're not actually really equipped to solve. Um, so within their purview, they, I think they could be helpful, but I'm not sure how helpful mm-hmm. they are for the real problems that most certainly musical communities are facing. Mm-hmm. So to
0: dive into your um, recent research, uh, can you start just by telling us a little bit about what is a street dance, where does it take place, who participates, Um What are you talking about here?
1: Sure. So, the street dance is uh, an event that happens in Jamaica and some other places where Jamaicans are, but especially in Jamaica. Uh, And it happens outside at night. And DJs and a group of people uh, affiliated with them set up a sound system where you have some kind of music playing device, turntables, CD player, something like that, Uh, Usually um, some microphones, often some effects or sirens or things like this, uh, giant towers of speakers. And either they or someone else also usually sets up a bar, and often uh, other people will spontaneously sort of set up a bar or start cooking food on the street. Uh, And folks in the neighborhood, and if it gets reputable, folks from outside the neighborhood will come to dance along to the music, sing along to the music, see who's there, show off in all their finery Uh, And they are mostly centered in poor communities because they happen outside uh, on the street, literally on sidewalks and and in the street. And so um, upper-class areas don't allow for that kind of sort of reuse of public space. Uh, It's still technically illegal. It violates all kinds of zoning laws, but lots of other laws are also violated in poor neighborhoods. It's just a place where the law is not as in effect. Uh, And instead... It sort of creates its own kind of social order In a way Uh, Mm -hmm. Not fully independent From the rest of the legal Or social system But sort of in dialogue with it And to some extent in resistance with it Uh, And so I became interested in street dances Because uh, The Popular music in Jamaica And popular culture in Jamaica Really Focus on them as a very important experience in Jamaican life, even the people that, and the entities that discuss it in negative tones, because a lot of people say that they're places where people are behaving in a degenerate fashion or in disrespectful or lewd or, you know, uncivilized. Um, You know, there's a lot of criticism about it, but in Jamaica, especially, lots and lots of people are talking about it. It's in the news all the time, uh, on TV, and uh, certainly anything to do with music We'll talk about, you know, who, which stars showed up and what were they wearing and who was there and what kinds of scandals happened. And, uh, if you listen to Jamaican popular music, not only are there references to dancing in the street, uh, uh, that are references to street dance experiences, but a lot of the, um, musical forms are influenced by the ways that people interact with music in a live setting. So, uh, Jamaican music is really centered on DJs playing recordings for an audience, where the audience makes demands on the DJ in a very direct way. Uh, If you you don't please a Jamaican street dance audience, they're going to let you know very aggressively. And if you do please, them, they're also going to let you know very assertively. And to some extent, the kinds of sort of interactions and interruptions that are created by the audience have been incorporated back into the music. So you have sirens and air horns and the sound of a record rewinding, Mm -hmm. which is something if people really like a song, they demand that you go back to the beginning and play it again. Mm -hmm. And you hear all of that brought back into the music itself so you can see how important it is. Um, So it's not that people don't engage with music in other places. There are nightclubs, there are bars, there are places that charge money, uh, but the street dance seems to be the sort of. Touchstone for authenticity That is, if you're big in the street dance You've really made it in Jamaica You're a real Mm -hmm. Jamaican performer And uh, because they're in poor neighborhoods It gives the urban poor a lot of cultural power Because you have to be validated by that audience Mm -hmm. In order to be big in the popular music scene And that particular aspect of it Is what really started to seem really important to me uh, When I was in Jamaica So I would go uh, to the dances uh, regularly And... I mean, there's every night of the week. There's multiple dances in Jamaica and most in, in Kingston and in most other towns as well. Uh, and they're usually free, uh, although not always. But most of the ones on the street are free because you can't really control it. And again, that makes it very welcoming to the poor. Uh, and uh, I would just go and stay as long as I could and observe and I'd get to know the music. And the fact that I already knew a lot of the music because of being a DJ was sort of helpful. In connecting with people And then I also spent time in studios And hanging out with musicians And other people involved in music Mm -hmm. And sort of asking them about it But most people who talk about Jamaican music uh, In the academic world Focus on sound systems Which is the people who The people and the machines It's a sort of cluster of people and machinery That make the sound In terms of they own the turntables and the speakers And they choose the records But I think If you don't account for what's happening in the audience, you really miss an important part of the creative process as well. So uh, that's why I thought the street dance was a really important one. I think the scholarship... There's more recent scholarship out of Jamaica that does talk about dancing and the audience. Um, Sonia Stanley Naya and Donna Hope are two folks, especially, and Carolyn Cooper before them. So there are scholars talking about it, but especially non-Jamaican scholars... Um, there's a ton of great books about Jamaican dance music, but it usually focuses on the men who control mm-hmm. the machines, um, which I think uh, is gendered in that way and leaves out a lot of other kinds of practices. So,
0: And so just to, to kind of try and break it down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so you spend some time in studios, you spend some time at these street dances. Uh, one of the things that's has interested you is the way um, for for artists and creators, you know, the more official people whose names are attached to the music, right. the way that um, they're dynamically interacting with the crowd. So exactly how, when someone's making the music, uh-huh. and maybe when someone's rethinking the music down the road, like uh-huh. these producers, official producers, what do they? How are they using the street dance to kind of think through or work through their creative process?
1: Uh, Going back way before the digital era, uh, producers would test music in the, in the dance. So they would play it out, and if it didn't get a response, they might not ever release it, or they might go back into the studio and rework it. So that's one of the main sort of ways that it gets embedded. So yeah, it gets embedded in a sort of creative process. Um, artists themselves, you know, if they, artists and DJs, if they, uh, sometimes it's called flop, when you flop at a dance, and it means when you don't impress the crowd. Like when you really don't impress the crowd, and people turn their backs on you, or they sometimes they throw puddles, or mm-hmm. there's just a, fa- a wall of sort of stone-faced people who are not impressed. Um, that can really f- hurt your career down the line. I mean, it's a it's a massive. Um, it can be a massive uh, problem for you if you if you don't impress the crowds properly. So artists and uh, DJs who Are engaging with those crowds Have to sort of continually Try to figure out how to um, Get the right response from them And it's a You know, it's a tricky line To figure out What that means You know, what it is That audiences want Because of course They want to be surprised To some extent Also, they don't want to hear The same thing forever If you play the same old stuff Mm -hmm. They've heard before They're going to be like Why are you playing The same old stuff At the same time If you don't play certain songs They expect to hear For various reasons they also are going to be annoyed. So it's a very dynamic relationship. Uh, and uh, to some extent, a lot of the meaning of what's happening in the music, for as an outsider, it doesn't really become apparent either until you see it in the street dance. That is, you can listen to the lyrics, you can listen to the songs, but until you see the ways that people respond to it and the way that, say, a particular song is contextualized by being played after certain songs are before certain songs, uh, you can't really understand, um, so much about the creative process because you can see how it fits into this kind of per- performance logic. So recordings are really not the end point of music making the, the live experience of the recording or with the recording is the end point. Uh, and so this goes back to, to the policy questions of sort of trying to understand how, you're go- how like law or technology engages with music making if you don't understand that people aren't trying to make recordings just to make recordings but that they're making them for this other purpose you're going to m- misunderstand what people are doing and be very surprised at how they engage with the stuff that you that you designed for them
0: so um, well then why don't we go to one of these recordings mm-hmm. and uh, so we'll just play it and then after we play it you can tell us What we're hearing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here we go. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why this is why this is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why this is why this is why I'm hot. Hot. The
1: this is why we are. This is why we step are. up in yeah. the club of champagne. We have papa, yeah. we a yeah. We we yeah. yeah. This is why, this is why, this is why
0: we are. Yeah. will Jamaica, yes, they know say we are. whole yeah. America, yeah. yes, yeah. Miss yeah. yes, we, yeah. we come and bless. This a mm-hmm. Blackout movements I one blood family ever yeah. uh-huh. Number one record for the billboards, but
1: Click to the rear of Pongs live in Dudes on the
0: Alright, so um, What were we listening to there? First, who was that?
1: What was the name of the song? Uh, I mean, the original name of the song is This Is Why I'm Hot And it is a Jamaican remix Or version, really Of an American rapper's tune And that's his voice you hear in the chorus In the very beginning uh, Named Mims. And this was a song that you would hear in the street dance that I heard in the street dance all the time in 2009. Uh, and it's really impressive to me on a lot of levels because it really embodies a lot of what I think of as crucial to understanding Jamaican music. And uh, one thing is that, to some extent, I think Jamaican music-making is a, is a process of engaging with music and not necessarily about... The source of the audio files so Or the, the source of the music So a lot of songs that are considered Classic Jamaican tunes were actually Covers of American pop tunes Or things like that And it's just that they became so big The Jamaican version became so big in Jamaica That they become symbolic of Jamaican music uh, And then In later times people took Like an American hip hop tune and made a Jamaican version And so that's a very Jamaican thing to do So to me this is a Jamaican song As much as anything else even though the beats and that chorus are still mims. Uh, but the really interesting things happen well, they happen in different ways, but some of them happen in the instrumental part of the song, uh, which is underneath the vocals. And the first thing that happens is the remixer I think this is called the Blackout version uh, and I can't remember now who the producer is of that. But they drop in Two samples of classic Jamaican music. And the first one is uh, the classic um, intro to a song called No, No, No by Don Penn. I can actually, by the way, give you those later if you want.
0: To okay, well, um, <laughs> we're going to edit this in post-production. Yes. We can going to play a clip of that. <laughs> It'll go here. We, 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 down 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 the, down the people
1: the, 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 the coming your way. way. Interestingly, that's an example, too. Almost everybody who knows that song says, oh, right, classic Jamaican song. It's actually a, covers of a cover of a 60s girl group song. Uh, but it's a Jamaican song, like, for all intents and purposes at this point. So, it, you know, it's a great example of that layering. So when you hear that, it's a sign that Jamaicans are happening to this American hip-hop song. Uh, and then a little bit later in, they drop in another classic Rhythm Which is the Stalag 17 Rhythm Sister Nancy version Where she sings "Bon, bon But that's the one that, uh, that dropped in second That I saw That you recognized uh, With the horns uh, In it uh, And so For me This was exciting To hear Because it was Clearly somebody saying We're taking this Big American pop tune And this tune Was big in Jamaica too the, This is why I thought The original was huge and, you, and people loved it And you heard it everywhere And we're gonna drop in Like the most Quintessential Jamaican tracks you know, and Stalag 17 is from, like, 1974. Um, and I forget where No 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 is, but it's pretty old, too. So these are, like, historic. These are pieces of Jamaican history that are being sort of injected into this pop tune. Um, and at the same time, you have Junior Reed, who's a very distinctive vocalist, who's also been around a long time, who's sort of doing his riff on uh, the lyrics and adding in new things. And then later on, you have, I think it's Bounty Killer. I can't remember who drops in a verse... Which is actually a verse he's used on other songs as well. So it's also sort of symbolic. I mean, the lyrics are good, but it's also... He's presenting himself again in the context of this American pop tune. Mm -hmm. And this all was really evident in the club or in the street dance because what would happen would be DJ would first play the original version, the Mims version. And then halfway through would mix in the new version and the crowd would go crazy. And you could tell that people were excited about... They liked the Mips version too, but they were excited about the sort of reintroduction of Jamaicans into this pop song. To be like, we are... We're going to take this pop tune, this American tune, and we're going to Jamaican it up. We're going to Jamaicanize it. Uh, And I think, you know, people are sensitive to the power of American culture and American media, and it doesn't mean they don't love it. Like, they, they loved the pop song but they like the idea of subverting it or retelling their own story within it. And this is not also uh, a sort of cultural purity kind of argument because if you hear in the lyrics, you know, uh, Junior Reid talks about being number one on the billboard charts. Like, people want to assert themselves within the pop context, but they want to do it in a Jamaican way. And I think that's what's really exciting about the song. I also think the Blackout remix, for me, is better than the original. But it's also better because you've heard the original, and so that's not a kind of um, value that's very easy to capture. in In uh, it's a kind of relational value that's not very easy to capture with sort of traditional understandings of property rights or other things. That is, that you need to have both of them in order for uh, you need to, you know in order for the second one to be good. And it doesn't mean you're cheating, it, but it's because it's a it's a conversation with the earlier music. Mm-hmm. So. That's part of why I think this is a quintessential sort of dance, street dance kind of song, because it plays to the crowd, but in an unexpected way. Like, people don't know that they're going to hear No, 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 and start so like 17, you know, mm-hmm. but they know that music, everybody knows those songs. Yeah. So dropping it in at that moment really evokes this sort of emotional response, but also a kind of politicized, kind of nationalistic almost response, not in a... Jingoistic way, but in this kind of resistance way, so it makes mm-hmm. it very exciting
0: So one of the things you talked about is how the street dance uh, mm-hmm. tends to happen in poor neighborhoods, not in wealthy neighborhoods, not necessarily in the center of the city Uh I don't know if we would call these ghettos or, or suburbs. Or wh- I mean, where would you say
1: it is? Yeah, I mean, geographically, it's hard to say. In some places, poor neighborhoods are in the center. In some places, they're okay. on the edges. Yeah. But um, but they happen in poor neighborhoods. Um, sometimes they're called garrisons, mm-hmm. which is interesting. It go- that, that term, which is a military term, goes back to the 70s when there was a lot of gun violence because the various political parties armed their poor supporters and... Um, That is the first... That also coincides with the rise of reggae. Uh, But um, now the term garrison partly just means a very poor neighborhood, but one also that has some association with this kind of perhaps uh, heavily armed contingent within that neighborhood. Um, And uh, the biggest street dance in Jamaica, and probably the most globally famous, is called Pasa Pasa, and it's in a really notorious neighborhood called Tivoli Gardens, mm-hmm. uh, which is also where one of the biggest like farmer's markets is in town. So it's a very... I mean, like, it's very densely layered, what happens uh, in these places. But it is a place that... So as a foreigner, I am dissuaded from going, yeah. and upper-class Jamaicans are often very much mm-hmm. hostile and suspicious and sort of why would you ever want to yeah. go there? Um, so if... I
0: mean am listening to it as an outsider Okay, when here's practices of remixing and sampling um, why is this particular style of you know, why is this particular style of creation more likely to take place in these street dances uh, in you know, poorer neighborhoods rather than why couldn't you do that in say a club in the center of Kingston mm-hmm. or whatever
1: well, within Jamaica, I mean, the clubs in the center of Kingston sometimes do play the same kind of music, but because those are more expensive, they uh, they attract a different clientele for the most part, uh, and so the culture is just different. That is not uh, 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 the music that's popular among the poor is still a sort of uneasy pleasure for middle and upper class Jamaicans. Uh, although usually by the very end of the night You will end up hearing it uh, But it's it's a generally a more restrained affair To some extent At most of the more formal venues And especially the ones associated with the upper class So within Jamaica I would say It's more cultural reasons Than any other reasons That just su- suggest that certain kinds of music and dancing Are not appropriate mm-hmm. for certain spaces uh, Outside of Jamaica I would say There are also questions about the legality of those musical practices, that is to say, um, you know, certainly venues in Germany, right, are very heavily controlled or attempted to be heavily controlled by GEMA and, like, rights collecting organizations, and the same is true in the States, Uh, and the more you have these kind of dynamic interactive practices that don't involve things like permission and licensing, the more you could run into trouble in certain kinds of Mm -hmm. venues for that kind of, um, behavior. Uh, although again, it's har- it's hard to separate the cultural from the legal in this case, because it's also just true that the more formal venues, that kind of music is not considered appropriate for all kinds of reasons that don't necessarily have to do with copyright law. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of hard to se- hard to tease out, but I would say that's not an accident. I would say those things go together for a reason, the formal copyright system and sort of... Upper class Western European white dominated uh, musical hierarchy—they are together, like they work together very well. So,
0: and do you think the do you think the street dance is it understood and practiced? So, is it understood? I mean, by participants as a kind of critical counter space, or is it more like this is what we do, this is how we do it? um, You know, what kind of. Because it's also, it, make, it makes it, it's clear from the way you're talking about, the way in which, for example, this particular track was modified, Jamaicanized, that there's also some awareness that they exist in some type of global or transnational oh, yeah. network, right? So what I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out, I mean, we're, you know, right, we're both academics. We're kind of talking about this at a, we can't help but talk about a certain academic right. level. I'm curious t- to what extent we can understand the concrete, immediate... right cultural meaning or understanding for the participants
1: yeah I mean I don't think I could summarize that I my impression is that you have all levels of uh, awareness going on at the same time within like a a, sort of a group of people so some folks talk about it as just entertainment this is what we do most folks if you like when I interviewed people because I did a lot of interviews when I asked artists who they made music for, some said they make music for everybody. Some said they want to be—they want to win Grammys. Some said they make music for poor people. But also, that would switch at different times. So I think they have all of that. People mm-hmm. have all of that in their head, and I think mm-hmm. it kind of depended on the context, which kind of answer you were going to get. It depends yeah. on the kind of conversation that we've been having, I think. And I definitely, when you see artists make public statements about what they're doing, it really depends on. What that context is in which they make that statement Whether they're going to claim a kind of resistance On behalf of the poor Or a kind of professional uh, Aspiration to being A global pop star uh, Those things don't Don't seem to be mutually, Mutually exclusive for the people Making those statements There's ways in which formally we might see those as mutually exclusive But I definitely saw all of that In evidence and I think DJs you know Speaking as a DJ I guess you know are incredibly sophisticated about that because that's how you are a good DJ is that you understand all the multiple layers of reference and meaning. You may or may not put that into words. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you push people, they can sometimes. But sometimes they don't want to. Um, but I would say that, uh, like, I don't know whether the producer of the blackout remix was like, I will inject Jamaican musical history into the song, or he was just like, I think it would be amazing to play this here. You know, mm-hmm. but the effect is still there. Yeah. And, and it's an effect that comes from I think a really solid intuition About how audiences are going to feel mm-hmm. um, And that comes from Concrete material experience So To some extent I think You know, my point is that I can draw out some of these more Abstract or theoretical arguments From these experiences But I do think that they sort of hold true To the specifics of those experiences mm-hmm. Pretty closely uh, It's just that people have multiple ways of talking about the same experience so again it sort of depends on the context which which one you're going to get
0: so one of the things, <coughs> t- <coughs> i think it's okay if i stay on a, a podcast larissa just came back from uh, the fusion festival a huge event in uh here in germany and she brought back with her a tremendous head cold yes and, good, and she is sort of powering through this podcast as various mucus membranes <laughs> to keep her from speaking so. fueled by ginger tea thank you for uh, thank you for persevering um, so you're mapping out this really uh, a pretty complex history of let's say musical dialogue right so in this conversation alone you're talking about music going back to the 60s and 70s uh, appropriations and reception of music that's being produ- produced in the United States um, reproduced reimagined, in Jamaica and then something like Style Like 17 is also getting injected into American music mm-hmm. and so on um and that's a history that moves a lot around let's say tape and vinyl and so on how have how does digitization and recent the you know increasing uh, networking of global music cultures shaped um uh, say, the Jamaican music scene today?
1: Uh, I think that's a good question because the immediate answer for me is in contradiction to the way that people usually talk about digital media in the U.S. and in the West, which is in the U.S. and in the West, there's this sort of fantasy narrative of before the digital era, everybody just dealt with, say, music in these discrete chunks, and suddenly now everything is open and we're reusing and blah, 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 blah. But as you just sort of re the history of Jamaican music is a history of reusing even material recordings going back to the 1940s. So people would press music onto vinyl with the understanding that that was raw material for more music. So you would record a single with the vocals on one side and then the instrumental on the other because you knew someone else was going to sing on top of it. So... You know, I mean, in a way, the narrative of people are reusing and remixing and engaging in music that's actually what culture is. So, of course, for any anthropologist, it's sort of a bizarre um, uh, line in history to draw. To be like, and then in the digital era, suddenly people started interacting with culture because so it's like, well, all culture, if you don't interact with it, it's dead. So, but the Jamaican example is interesting because it's also specifically about material recordings which is not everywhere, like not every culture reuses recordings, but Jamaica actually has been doing this for a really long time and so the digital era did not usher in a whole new era of reuse and remixing because people were already doing that and that's another reason why it's a great place to study in the context of these digital media debates because it forces us to think more carefully about what it is that Is special about digital, uh, and it's not really this issue of interactivity or reuse. That's not really, to me, the thing that's special. And in fact, even the scarcity argument, the fact that digital makes things not scarce, uh, I mean, Jamaica is one of the most prolific producers of recordings uh, in the world, and has been, and that's also true from before the digital era. I mean, in, in raw numbers, it's not that huge, but still... I mean, the place is swimming in musical recordings and has been, and that wasn't really. People tried to create scarcity over, you know, an obscure record that you had you wouldn't tell anyone about, but the rhythms circulate, everything circulates. It's not about scarcity, it's about what you do with all of the circulating stuff. So, again, that kind of contradicts this narrative that you usually get around the digital era. So, for me, the thing that I became interested in, because I'm really interested in equality and, uh, cultural autonomy and uh, in, and power is the thing that the digital era has done to some extent is make transparent practices that have always happened, but make them visible in a new way. And not just in Jamaica, because I think a lot of this sort of excitement over remixing and all this stuff, it's actually just us seeing what people used to do in other ways. Uh, but in Jamaica, it's especially true that now... Yeah, things are circulating even faster. People hand around CDs and USB drives and hard drives all the time, and people are sending stuff. And it's definitely, I think, altered some of the Jamaican diaspora. Like, Jamaica has as many people living outside of Jamaica as in Jamaica. People, and people circulate and always like and have for years through Canada, the UK, and the US, as well as many other places. Uh, and it's definitely easier to circulate the the, the um, recordings as well now, so it goes faster. But I think part of uh, what hasn't been discussed so much is that the networks on which those things are circulated are not necessarily uh, either secure or designed by the people who make the music. So you can embed all kinds of tracking, monitoring software on not just the networks, but sort of the platforms so people post a lot of stuff on YouTube, but YouTube has audio scanning software that will flag things that it thinks are copyright violating. So all the practices that people used to engage with that they are trying to bring into all these online spaces uh, are now subject to a different kind of scrutiny that has very little to do with their own priorities. Uh, So that's one of the big changes. And then one of the things that I've even more recently gotten into is that one of the differences in the digital era is that there's a much greater ease in circulating visual information uh, and and making and circulating it. So because now you can make a video with your phone and circulate that online, and that's just, that was definitely not possible before. Video moving images with sound was just not a thing that many people could create. And now you can. You're getting a circulation of visual media centered on these music scenes. uh, And that, I think, is also changing some of the, uh, the meanings of what's happening in the street dance because street dances are such local experiences where you really have to find them and go there and figure out how to be comfortable in that space if you're not from there. Uh, and so you become, I mean, this is the argument for uh, ethnography at all, right, is that you sort of have to become to some extent subject to or at least a little more humble about the people that you're looking at because you're in their space and Mm -hmm. they are in control of the space. But these visual images circulate far beyond that. And so um, that's another change, I think, is that you're getting new visual representations and new issues around what it means to be visible physically uh, that you didn't get before. Mm
0: -hmm. So there's... uh, Right, so you have this kind of extension of existing practices. Uh... You also, if I'm, I'm just trying to kind of recap, mm-hmm. you have um, the growing use of resources like YouTube, uh, for example, also introduce, what can you say, some type of corporate and legal monitoring?
1: Yeah, like copyright right. surveillance. Yeah. Uh,
0: you also have a kind of uh, making visual of this local intimate scene to the world Mm -hmm. Um, and probably I guess like some kind of is there would you say is there like a kind of intensification of say the exchange back and forth between say New York music scenes and Kingston music scenes
1: I mean it's hard to say because it's always been very intense like the, the, the relationship between Jamaica and the UK and, and the US especially around music I because mean, people always circulated and they're very close. Uh, I, I mean, you know Jamaican music is popular really far from Jamaica and places like Japan as well. But that also kind of happened before or earlier in the digital era. So in the 2000s is when you started to get a lot of Jamaican uh, Japanese dance hall crews showing up in Jamaica to like compete in local dance hall competitions and but now it's actually interesting uh, when I was in Jamaica or at least in 2009 Jamaicans were saying yeah the Japanese don't come so much because they have such a big local scene that they actually don't need to come here anymore and they're not you know which is interesting and people were sort of ambivalent about it because I think it was a good source of money to have foreigners come and want to record in Jamaica and have that experience. But also there was a kind of respect about, like, mm-hmm. the scene has got its own center now. So I, I don't think that even, I mean, in some ways, you know, the digital era definitely makes that easier, too, that it probably spreads farther mm-hmm. than it did before. But to some extent, you know, Jamaican dance hall and popular music, it's accessible to some, but it's very specific set of sounds. Or it's, I mean, it's a broad set of sounds in a way, but it's not accessible to everybody sonically. Uh, and so the ways in which it crosses over are sort of shaped by the cultural responses to literally to the sounds and the practices that are there. Uh, and again, that's why I'm sort of interested now in this visual aspect of it because I think the visual aspect of it is, is accessible in different ways um, where you can look at the people even if you don't understand what they're saying. Uh, and that, I think, brings in a whole other set of issues uh, around what uh, performance is and what... Uh, what is being created by these spaces and these practices? Um, so yeah, I would say the um, the increased transparency and then this other introduction of visual stuff are the especially the two mm-hmm. new things. Um, but I mean, I guess I'm probably da- I may be downplaying too much the the increasing reach and speed of circulation. I mean, I think that is yeah. that that is definitely mm-hmm. an issue. I just feel like the Jamaican music scene has really been global for since the 70s, you know, I mean, the first wave of Jamaican music became popular because of the uh, anti-colonial resistance movements in the third world and in also the sympathy movements in Europe and places like that. And so people were listening to reggae because they were anti-fascists or whatever. Uh, And so that happened without digital stuff. So just to highlight that it's been global already.
0: So one of the things we've been talking about since the beginning of this conversation is the way that uh a number of discussions in the United States about copyright and licensing and so forth don't necessarily speak to the motivations of um Jamaican producers, mm-hmm. be they producers in the studio or people in the street. Mm-hmm. Um and you yourself uh have a little bit of a policy background. Um Does that, do you see this? Do you see your research as having either a set of policy implications for a place like Jamaica, right? Be it laws and policies that should be enacted there, or say laws and policies that should be enacted at some other level like the WTO Mm -hmm. to, you know, to more realistically serve uh, these types of creative practices?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think especially after living for a year in Jamaica, uh, although I guess I could have lived in some communities in the U.S. probably and come to the same conclusion, but I ke- became very suspicious about of or pessimistic about the role of policy in actually changing everyday life um, in that I think a lot of the power issues that structure, you know, the problems that people face are not things that, for example, copyright policy has a lot to do with. Um that said, I do think that uh, certainly at the international level, at the WTO level, there could be better ways to structure uh, international copyright policy to respect local variations, to leave room for more limitations and exceptions to copyright, which is like limitations and exceptions is like an actual formal term for uh, a set of carve-outs against um, copyright, which includes things like um you know, access for the blind and stuff like that, but it could include all kinds of cultural things. I think for me, some of it is pushing back against the idea that everything needs to be accounted for within the system. I think the more there can be actual limitations and exceptions that are carve-outs where the law doesn't go uh, might be important because because of the way that digital technology is so intimately intertwined with people's lives, Again, like way more things are visible than used to be. That I don't think that means we should have a policy for all of them, like a legal policy for all of them. Uh, You know, we can monitor what kind of songs you're singing to your child when they go to sleep, but that doesn't mean we should have a special license for it. I think we should just not worry about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I kind of part of it is trying to be like, where can we actually carve out a space in policy where it's not monitoring what's happening? And then I think there's sort of egregious. you know misunderstandings like this issue of incentive, which I think it would be nice to just kind of kick some of these to the curb at this point and be like, let's let's not pretend that's actually how the law functions in relation to music making because it just doesn't function that way. So you know there's sort of an accuracy, like some of it I'm, I think we could be uh, fixed in that way, and I think also allowing room for local and community based sort of definitions of what of what is important to them is, is really valuable. So at the WTO level, you did have this pushback um, of the development agenda, which was basically a coalition of the, quote, like less developed countries who pushed back on the World Trade Organization's intellectual property policy and said, we think the developing countries should have different rules because we have different needs as developing countries about access to knowledge it was less focused on cultural practices. It was more focused on you know textbooks and science and things. But I think, to me, just the fact that that happened, setting aside all of the machinations of what goes on in Geneva, which I'm sure have levels and levels of complications that have nothing to do with you mm-hmm. know everyday life. But I think those are very help- hopeful. The idea that right, the same thing isn't going to work everywhere. Copyright policy is not neutral. Technology policy technology is not neutral. They have already agendas embedded in them. And so part of what I think of as the policy intervention is to say, given that there are values embedded in these institutions and these technologies, what do we want them to be and why? Because instead what happens is there's this sort of idea of, oh, we're democratizing access by giving everybody laptops, as opposed to, well, what are the ideologies in those laptops? Uh, what do those, how do those laptops structure how people can interact with each other you know are they all part of a global monitoring system of copyright or whatever else it is you know so just talking about technology in terms of access or lack doesn't get into these issues so the more that I think we can bring that conversation to the front I think the better will be
0: and uh, just the last question um Right, so a lot of your musical work, your work as a DJ has taken place in places that are first world, mm-hmm. uh, cities like San Francisco and New York. You're here in Berlin. I I'm sort of met Larissa slash uh, DJ Ripley through a, a gig she did last weekend uh, in North Cologne in Berlin. Um, and you're also... But your research is looking more at, at least at Jamaica, and also questions of the global south, oh, right? Okay. And so... Just a last question. In your own practice, what types of, say, affinities and distinctions do you see between, say, the DJ scene in Berlin, which is very often more or less like, it's not well-paid, it's off mm-hmm. the corporate radar and so on, although there is a lot of money around it. Um, how, do, how does that sort of compare or contrast with what you're seeing in a, the, among the DJs and producers in Jamaica?
1: I think... One of the continuities has to do with the fact that, I mean, you can literally trace DJ culture to Jamaica. It's not that other traditions don't have reuse and, you know, yes, you know, Bach reused things. And yeah, like that's all true. But literally the practice of DJing comes from Jamaica via New York. And a lot of electronic music production is influenced by dub. Uh, so, you know, I mean, House and Techno and all of the club musics, I think, are have a tremendous debt to Jamaican practices. And so, to some extent, those practices come out of dealing with this post-colonial context where you don't, you had, you know, for people uh, who were enslaved from Africa, they had most of their culture ripped away, and they had to make do with all the pieces that they had and with whatever came their way to make new culture, right? And that's like the, you know, Paul Gilroy cultural studies argument right but I think it's really true like that's why this issue of access and reuse is so important because where it comes from first is this sur- sort of the idea of cultural survival of rebuilding yourself and your communities out of the pieces of what you had left and what's around you now on your own terms and so to some extent those practices are used now all over the world by people who aren't necessarily descendants of slaves or, or whatever and uh, so, they don't automatically have that same meaning, but mm-hmm. they can, they, and they have that kind of history behind it. And so, I think, you know, to a great extent, the way that music flourishes in sort of marginalized communities and marginalized spaces um, does draw a lot on the similar dynamics that are uh, um, also in play in Jamaica. So, for example, uh, underground parties that are affiliated with gay and queer communities, you know, but and also especially, I would say, uh, queer and transgender communities in places where it's really not safe to be yourself outside of those spaces. But you go there and you can be yourself. You, know, you may not be able to be yourself at home because your family doesn't recognize you. You can go there and be yourself. And so it has to have, again, it has a kind of importance to be in that space. And again, these are usually nightlife spaces. Like, club music has been really important for this. And I think, you know... I don't know. I haven't theorized too far with this, but I think that there's that same similar affinity going on with this need to sort of make use of. Like the culture is not designed for you. Uh, in fact, it's designed around your absence or, or erasing you to some extent. But still, you have to take pieces of it to make what you need of your of your identity and yourself. You could perhaps even make that argument about gender itself. But you know, you could write these kind of these kind of things. So I'm always interested in how underground spaces flourish and how they, uh, and how I think they're usually better when they're illegal in the sense that the music is usually better and they usually function better. And I think it's a similar issue, which is that like when you have squat parties and warehouses and, you know, after hours bars, that's where people who can't be other places go. And so they function in a similar way to some extent to the street dance. Um, and they don't have to though, because of course club music has crossed over into these massive corporate events. And so it really matters what the space is and who the people are in the space. And the music actually isn't, again, to me, is not the defining factor in that. So I can't say that like dubstep or breakcore or jungle or hip hop intrinsically is about serving that social function. It's that when it happens in these kind of spaces, it serves that. When you see those people in the room, it serves that function. And so that's one thing I learned to articulate better in Jamaica, but that really resonated when I came back. Uh, To the states uh, was looking at how important you know for immigrant communities too you know music is so important for bringing people together because they don't have access to popular culture in the places that they are it's not there to represent them but they use it and they engage with it Um, and so the other side of it I think is being in Jamaica also attuned me a lot more to this these the importance of thinking about power dynamics when you're thinking about appropriation, that is, appropriating up and appropriating down are not the same thing. Uh, And so, as a musician also in the global north, you know how I deal with artists and musicians and people from far away is really important. That is, I try not to replicate the kind of extractive, exploitative attitude that you can sometimes get where you engage with music of other cultures, but you don't really respect what they're about. You don't really think about how you affect the people from those places. And that doesn't mean you have to be precious. Like, I'm all for taking stuff and remixing it to make it totally weird and unrecognizable or subverting it or things like that. But to to at least be conscious that there are those dynamics I think is uh, something else that I, uh, I sort of became more attuned to in Jamaica and that I couldn't... It wasn't enough, for example, to use the sort of shallow language of the commons that is really popular in the U.S., I didn't want to go to Jamaicans and be like, "Yes, your culture is a commons. It's great. I can take everything I want from it." Like I just felt that's that just seemed terrible Mm -hmm. Uh, and not very appealing to Jamaicans either. They're like, "What do you mean? Like we're a commons for you? That's great. What do you know? How do how do we deal with that? You know?" So I felt like being there made me think more carefully about how those dynamics work and about what kinds of boundaries um, matter and how they get built.
0: Great. Well. uh this was really fascinating. Um, if anyone out there has a chance to hear Larissa either spin or lecture, I strongly recommend it. As I said, <laughs> uh, I just saw her at um, at a bar in Berlin, and then uh, said, "Hey, do you want to do a podcast?" And she said, "Yes." Um, and I'm really glad I did. Um, and I
1: gave a lecture in the bar, and I DJed
0: a lecture in the bar. Right? Yes. So I was at. It was actually. I mean, there was also. That's one of the things Berlin is good about with alternative spaces. I mean, you really had I'd say most people there were not academics; they just like music, and mm-hmm.
1: yeah. They and really good questions, really yeah. good people, really paid attention. It was great.
0: So definitely, uh, if you're in Turin next week, or I guess this will probably go up after your after your next gig. But anyway, you, what you guys should do if you're listening, uh, you should go to djriply.blogspot.com. So, that you can probably hear some of her music, uh, learn about some of her recent research. Maybe we'll show up there.
1: And my tour schedule is on there too.
0: Her tour schedule. Um, so, thank you for talking to us.
1: Thank you for having me.